How's everyone doing? Good. Sorry about last week. Uh, yeah, I got, we got back from India last night, about 10, 10.30ish by the time we got home. And so uh, I was like, all right, I'm going to study. I looked at the journey. Went, okay, I got Isaac. And then I found out, oh, no, actually, I've got Abraham and maybe a little bit back. So we're, we're going we're gonna, <laughs> to catch up a little bit. Um, but India, for those who are praying, thank you so much. Um, we had a team of 10 over there to come alongside Suresh. The first week, we spent a lot of time going and uh, to his different ministries and helping support. Um, we got to spend a lot of time at the new leprosy camp, which is being um, um, built up in the uh, northern part of um, Tenali, about an hour north of Tenali. And it's just amazing what um, Harvest India is doing with the lepers and um, the places where they are, the build, that they're building for them are actually nicer than most of the homes in Tenali. So it's, it's really cool that they get uh, um, to be part of that. We went to an AIDS, um, an AIDS um, hospice, went to a Mercy Clinic, and basically Harvest India every Saturday morning. And they, they would like to do it every day, but they just don't have the funding to do it. But every Saturday morning, they, hand, they go into the, the slums and they hand out eggs and milk and bread and bananas and oranges and just to see the people lined up and it's emotional and you see the little kids and as the team starts to hand out we're going down the line and then we start saying we're not going to make it where there's just not enough food for everybody there and then as you start running all of a sudden the swarm start and you just see the desperation and um india's got a lot of desperation there so that, that was a hard moment um we were able to do an outreach we had um, um, Sarah, um, probably about 40 or 50 except Jesus, which is really good coming out of the Hindu culture. Um, so that, that was a lot, of, a lot of fun. And then the VBS, we had about 350 um, of the Cornerstone specific orphans that we sponsor at our VBS. And so we were able to walk through and actually replicate um, the whole kingdom um, VBS curriculum that was done here um, last summer. So India is a phenomenal trip. Um, it, it's, a, it's a powerful trip. And what Suresh and Harvest India is doing is just amazing. So if you've ever um, had it on your heart to go on a mission trip, I know we, we've got a lot of them going right now. Um, we're going to move India next year to March during spring break. That gives options for um, some students. Um, I, w- I keep it college and above. And then um, also teachers to also go on it. But um, that gives you about 14 months to sort of figure out, hey, am I going to do India um, We've got Kenya coming up here um, pretty quick this summer, so if you're interested in that, please sign up on that. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to uh, fire out the Jamaica mission trip, um, um, the beginning of that. That'll be in September and then October, so we've got um, three different trips going down to Jamaica. So if you're interested in going on missions, talk to me, talk to Lydia, or uh, um, just be aware of when the, the different meetings come up. So. All right, so we're going to keep going down this journey um, 180. Everybody have your journey 180 um, little program back there. We've got our notes for this morning. I say we. I haven't found mine yet. There we are. Okay, so we've got the journey 180. Now, uh, technically, we're supposed to, it's February 2nd, also known as Super Bowl Sunday. We're supposed to be hitting Isaac. What I'm going to do is I'm going to um, join Isaac with um, Jacob um, this Tuesday. And so we're going we're gonna to hit Abraham. He's, he's a pretty big character, and we haven't um, talked about him yet. And then we're going to back up a little bit, because I want to touch on a couple things um, in the post-flood world that are, are rather important um, to check out. I, I wish we could do a class that's just Genesis 1 through 11, because you can spend a year on Genesis 1 through 11 and really hit it. Because even the timelines 
that most of us, and be honest, you go through timelines and you go, all right, I'm just going to pass this because I don't care whose grandfather is whose grandfather. Um, but it's actually fun to, to stop and look at the timelines, especially in Genesis um, 10 um, and the beginning parts of 5, because it explains a lot about um, where we're at. Um, Genesis 1 through 11 really is the foundation for everything. Um, the, the beginnings of everything. And then once we get into chapter 12, which we'll hit today, um, we get into Abraham. So let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer and then we'll get going. Um, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings that um, happened on the India trip. And I just um, pray that um, for those that are still back there and just fighting um, in the trenches, I just pray for Suresh and his team at Harvest India that you continually give him the leadership um, vision, the wisdom to see things the way you see them, give them perseverance, give them the financial support and the partnerships that they so desperately need. Heavenly Father, I just also pray um, as we continue in this um, timeline on Journey 180 that you will um, illuminate um, exactly what you have for us to learn today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have um, to be here at Cornerstone. We thank you for this amazing country we live in that allows us to to meet freely and talk about you. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, everybody have one of the one of the one of these bad boys? Okay. All right, they're back there. Um, we're actually going to um, move back. If you turn to Genesis chapter 5, and I know at the mine, for those who went to the mine or listened to it on podcast... <coughs> We actually got through, um, I, I think he, uh, Manny hit on um, the Nephilim. Um, he also went in, give a little background on Noah, uh, walked through there. I think he um, got through the ark a little bit and um, hit some parts of the flood. But what I want, want you to see is Genesis chapter 5 all the way through Genesis chapter 11 really is of one timeline. It's a timeline that starts out, and this is the written account of Adam's family line. And it will just go, and it will move on through. And you see chapter 5, it just starts going through. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch... And so it just goes down, and it's almost the exact same verbiage. You just need to fill in the blank with a new name, a new father, a new son... And it goes on there, and then when it gets to an important character, all of a sudden it will just stop, okay? And it will illuminate a little bit of knowledge that you need to know, and then obviously it stopped at Noah and gave you three chapters of illumination. And then right after Noah, it just picks right back up, as if the timeline never stopped, and you have the same verbiage um, going on. So, and then it will stop again, and it give you a little bit of an insight of the Tower of Babel, and then it will fly again. So... That starts in Genesis chapter 5, um, 3. One person, I, a couple people I want to uh, point out to you is, um, let me find them here. Go up to uh, chapter 10. Chapter 10 on the Table of Nations hits three different characters, um, the Japhites, the Hamites, and the Semites. Now, who, who are the Japhites, Hamites, and Semites? Anybody know? Yeah, the three sons of Noah. So basically, we always say, hey, we can trace everything back to Adam and Eve, and that is true, but technically, we, we just need to trace it back to Noah's family, because it, it, 
um, once the, the flood started and we have the ark, we really have reduced the world down to eight people. Okay, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And then once the ark opens up, the world has eight human beings to start out with. And we've got the three sons and their families. And so in chapter 10, we see how it will, it, it'll show the Japhites and you'll, you'll go down a little bit of the lineage. You'll see the Hamites and you'll go down a little bit of the lineage of, of Ham. And then it will roll into the, the Semites. And then from after that, we're just worried about the Semites. Okay? So what I want to point out to you is on this, I've got four circles there. And the reason why I hit this early is because this can get confusing in the Old Testament. And it can even get confusing once you get into the New Testament. Because we go, all right, well, who are the Jews? Where did they come from? And are the Jews the same as the Israelites? Aren't they one and the same? And isn't, aren't they Hebrews? And aren't they Semites? Because when we're anti-Semitic, what, what does that typically refer to? We're anti-what? Jew. Okay? So here's what I want you to do. At the top of the circle, I want you to write Shem. S-H-E-M. One-third of the world is Semitic, okay? Because as we go from Japheth, Ham, and Shem, Shem's entire line, which eventually is probably about one-third of the world, give or take, uh, whatever, um, Shem means, that's where we get the word Semitic at, from Shem, okay? So as you can see, when we're anti-Semitic, it, it technically is not just the Jews, all right? The next um, layer down, I want you to write Eber. And I want you to go to chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 21. Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem are Elam, or Elam, Asher, Arphax, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram are Uz, um, Hal, Gether, and Meshech. Arphax was the father of Shelah, and Shelah was the father of Eber. Okay, pause it, Eber. Eber is where we get the term Hebrew. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time, the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Now, Peleg has nothing to do with the circles, but Peleg, um, many believe that this is when um, either was during his generation that the Tower of Babel happened, so it was either that division that it's referring to, or it's when the continents had their largest drift. So... Um, we don't exactly know what it's mean or what it means because in his time the earth was divided. I would lean to say this is probably around when the Tower of Babel happened um, during this generation. Okay, so back to the circles. We got Shem the Semites. We've got Eber the Hebrews. The next person I want you to put on there is Jacob. And what's another name for Jacob? Israel. That's where we get Israelites. 
So the Israelites are all those that come from Jacob. Okay? Then the final little one, I want you to put Judah. Where does Judah come from? He's one of the twelve what? Sons of Israel or Jacob. So um, Judah is one of the twelve sons of Jacob, and it's also one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now Judah in Greek is Juden, which is where we get the term Jew. So if you World War II buff and you, you've seen it in Germany, um, there was a lot of like Juden, and they would mark that to let let the, the Nazis and all that know where where the Jews were, and they would mark their their shops and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so are the Jews the same as the Israelites? Are the Israelites the same as the Hebrews? Are the Hebrews the same as the Semites? Yes and no. And here's how you have to remember this. All Jews, Judah, are Israelites. Not all Israelites are Jews. Does that make sense? Okay. All Jews are Israelites. Not all Israelites are Jews. All Israelites and Jews are Hebrews. Not all Hebrews are Israelites and Jews. All Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews are Semitic. Okay? So, but not all Semitic people are necessarily Jews. Now, we've transferred the name Semitic to mean Jews. But if you want to be technical according to the Bible, that's not true. So, to be anti-Semitic is also to be anti-Arab and anti-technically according to the Bible. Okay? So, all Hebrews, that would include all the Moabites, Amorites, all, all, the, all the Arab nations, all, they're all under the line of, of Shem. Okay? And so, as we follow this timeline, and we're going from Abraham, and then we move down to Moses and David and Daniel, on to, Ju- or on to Jesus... We sort of follow this timeline, and our circles start shrinking a little bit. Okay, and so once we get a new character, like we go from Shem to Eber, Hebrews, we start. We don't really care about the rest of the the group, or at least the Bible doesn't, because it's following the messianic thread. Once we get to Israel, the Bible spends all the time talking about the twelve tribes, which is, which is Israel, and you you no longer deal with some of the. Um, the tribes that come from Esau or some of the other ones, which we'll get to um, at the mine. And then finally, once you get to Judah, we really, they stop, the Bible stops really caring about the other tribes. One of the main reasons, and we'll get to this when we um, um, get to the point of the split kingdom, when, when the kingdom split and we got the northern tribes and we got the southern tribes, the northern tribes are called Israel, the southern tribes are called Judah, which is only two tribes. And then when... Um, Israel gets basically sacked. They disappear off the map. Those ten tribes just disappear. And then we only deal with Judah. So by the time Jesus comes on the stage, we're only dealing with Judah. Okay? And so a lot of times the terms mix. And so when we get to the New Testament, you'll hear about the Israelites, but it's really just referring to Judah because the other ten tribes are gone. Okay? Um, You'll hear some reference to the Hebrews, but it's because they're only referring to this. So does that sort of make sense? Okay, so let's, um, let's just briefly, we're going to hit you with a fire hose today. Um, let's catch up with the flood. So um, um, I have not watched the podcast yet. Um, so Manny, I, I, did he hit the ark? Uh, talked about that. Talked about 
the flood. What, one thing you need to understand after the flood is, uh, after the water evaded, the topography of the earth totally changed. Totally changed. So everything that was pre-flood doesn't look anything like post-flood. And as the waters, um, they talk about how the waters came about in the flood. Yes? No? No? Okay. So the Bible talks about how the waters released, the rains came from heaven. This is possibly the first time it rained. We don't know this um, um, for sure, but this is possibly the first time it rained because before flood, there was a very good chance we had more of a greenhouse greenhouse effect. There's a big argument um, whether there was actually a water canopy above the earth before the flood. Um, it's an argument. There, there's debates on both sides. If there was a water canopy, it does definitely help make some more sense of some of the pre-flood conditions, how, how everything would be more temperate. Um, the poles and the, the equator would have been fairly similar instead of so drastically different as they are today. It would also help explain how uh, the elongation of life would have happened without all the solar radiation and all that kind of fun stuff, which we don't have time um, to get in to today. It would also um, help understand how some of the distance, um, distant stars and galaxies would have been seen. We've got a lot of evidence that when you look back um, in time, a lot of these ancient um, astronomers knew stuff that were just being found out the last century. And they're like, how on earth? Well, and if you actually had a water canopy um, around the earth, that would act like a mirror. So you would see things so much further deep than what we could, it would almost be like a telescope as you're looking through that water. And the beauty, if you actually did have a water canopy, and I'm not saying we did, but if you actually did have a water canopy, um, the movement would have been a lot different. If you've ever looked in the pool and you put your hand under there, everything moves and all that. So imagine what the stars would look like if they actually had that weird, t- be pretty cool. Um, some even believe that that's how some of the ancient uh, people knew um, the map of the, uh, of the world and how because at night, it would no longer be a telescope, but it would act more of a mirror. Okay, so, um, so fun things to study. You can study that um, online if you want. A great place to go, there's a guy named Lambert Dolphin, and, um, and he did some crazy studies. But another one would be Henry Morris um, out of the Institute for Creation Research. Um, actually, in the bookstore, there's um, um, a, a book by Henry Morris um, talking about Genesis. It is a phenomenal a phenomenal study. So if you'd like to learn more about all that kind of stuff, there's also a book called The Genesis Flood, which really gets into detail. But as the flood happens, the water not only came out from the top, which if there was a water canopy, that would explain how much water hit, but it also came from the bottom. Some believe that um, the land... Whoops. I'm famous for doing this. All right. Some believe that the land, whoops, the land possibly looked like this at one time. You had one continent, so this would be land, this would be water, water, and vast storage of water underneath the land. And when the flood happened, it burst forth, and what was once land. Now water, what was once what was once water is now land. Um, some people believe that's why um, a lot of the pre-flood stuff is not to be found, or like the ancient city of Atlantis, or all some of these 
type of things. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, the waters, if the waters came from the ground, which the Bible says they did, it would have split the continents. As you can see, if you look at a, a, one of those globes that takes the water away, you can see sort of the patchwork. Um, that's where the water would have shot out. Any, anybody that's ever been out working on a hose and put high pressure on it and you put that in mud, you'll see um, trenches all of a sudden starting to form. You'll see little mountain, baby mountain ridges starting to form. The pressure of the water would have been pretty drastic. Um, that would have caused um, um, a lot of continents, continental drift to happen incredibly fast at the beginning and slowing down through time. Now apparently our contents, or contents are, the contents of our continents um, move, I think, it's like three inches a year. How on earth they can measure that, I don't know, but um, so the continents are moving um, and drifting as we speak. Uh, again, um, smarter people than me, but they, they're consistently moving and the continents are, um, if you know the Pacific, they're dropping under what would be known as Japan. Um, which is causing a lot of the whole Pacific Rim, the Ring of Fire, where a lot of the earthquakes happen. But um, if that happened, or not if, when the waters came up, it would have shot this way, shot that way. A lot of the mountain ridges could have got caused very early on um, during the flood and then after the flood. After the flood, if there was a water canopy, um, and how big that was, we don't know. Um, once that's gone, you no longer have a temperate zone in the world. Okay? You no longer have a greenhouse effect. So it was uh, all of a sudden the polar caps become freezing. And we just flew over um, the polar caps and, and, it, and it was cold. It was like minus 140 um, in the, outside the plane. Um, and so, yeah, it gets rather cold. And so immediately after the flood, as the water is evading, the water on the top and the bottom of our planet wouldn't just disappear. It would freeze. Okay, so you'd have real thick chunks of ice on the top and the bottom, and that would have gone, and again, I'm hoping you guys know the World Atlas, that would have dropped to where the ice, what we would know as one, the Ice Age, would have dropped all the way down to about middle Europe, down just below Canada, what we now know as Canada, and it would have come up, and then over the last 2,000, 3,000 years, um, or 4,000 years, it would slowly have evaded. So most of the... Um, human beings that uh, came after the flood only lived in what's called the habitable zone, okay? And that's why we see um, civilization starting from this habitable zone because there's no way people could have lived up in what's now um, England or down what's, what's now South Africa because that was all under ice, okay? And as the ice starts melting, the waters um, start rising, okay? So at the very beginnings after the flood the ocean levels are a lot lower than they are now, which means we have bridges and we have um, areas where you can walk across that are no longer available. There's a bridge between Australia and Africa. Or there's a bridge uh, we know between um, Russia and Alaska that is now underwater and slowly going underwater. So this explains how humans and animals were able to move to the different continents. Not only that is after the flood, the continents are slowly moving, moving apart. So that's how we get kangaroos down in, in Australia and all these kind of things. Right after the flood, civilization came from basically the eight people, started at um, 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 the ark, 
And as they went down Mount Ararat and they followed the two rivers, which they would have renamed after rivers that um, they saw they had pre-flood, then we get to the Tower of Babel. Right? We can't spend too much time on this because we've got to get to Abraham. But we get to the Tower of Babel. Um, mankind is disobeying what God told them to do. They were supposed to be fruitful and increase and spread out. They did not. They decided to all stay together. They're under one language. We do not know what that language was. If I had a guess, and a lot of theologians would would probably lean this way, it might have been the Hebrew language. It might have been the Hebrew language. It's very possible that this was the original language, or maybe it was just a mix of the of all of them we don't know. But when God came down and confused the languages, and we see another um, reference to um, us as we come down, um, we have the languages split most likely into 70 groups because those are the 70 groups directly after the Tower of Babel that are mentioned. And these groups ended up spreading all over the earth. So we've got three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. We see in chapter 9 of Genesis, verse 24, we have an incident where Noah gets drunk. And two of the brothers handled it right. One of the brothers did not handle it right. Um, the Bible doesn't elaborate exactly what Ham did um, that brought the curse onto Canaan. We don't know. Um, but Ham um, got cursed basically because of his reaction um, to Noah and the curse um, went down um, to Canaan, um, which is a way, an ancient way, a lot of times when people were blessed or specifically when they were cursed, it wasn't them specifically, but they would curse um, the next layer down just to, just to show that this was a, an all-encompassing um, curse on him. So Canaan got the curse, and then we start walking into the Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the three sons. We get into chapter 10, it talks about the three different sons. Um, just for our knowledge, if you follow where the tribes that are mentioned under um, Japheth went, they went to Europe and they went over to India. India and Europe are Japhetic for the most part. Okay, Obviously we've had some blend over the left. But the Indians, that's where you get the Indo-European stock. Okay, They're, 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 they're relatives. Okay, The Hamites... They moved. They went down into Africa, and then they went over into the Orient, and then all over down into the Western Hemisphere. So any of the Oriental and any of the what we would see of the original um, um, Indians on in the Western Hemisphere are all Hamitic. The tribes of Shem stayed right where they were. They didn't move. Okay? So Shem basically stayed in what we would now know as the Middle East. Okay, So almost all of Europe went up to, was Japhetic. That's where they ended up, those tribes ended up moving. Um, and then over into India, about Ham went over to Orient and then went into Africa and Shem's tribes stayed where they're at. We have 70 different languages. Why would confusing a language cause people to move? Imagine you're at the Tower of Babel, everybody speaks the same language, and all of a sudden, you're moving, you're, you're working, you're doing whatever, and all of a sudden, we're no longer speaking the same language. What happens? I'm no lo longer associating with him. And all of a sudden, people are finding the people that actually speak the same language, and they start to huddle up. It is not like today when we run into someone 
and they're speaking Italian or they're speaking French or they're speaking Spanish because we're able to identify that. We can go, okay, that sounds like French or that sounds like German. These people had no idea what these people were doing. They had no idea. There was no pre-existence of these languages. So there's no way they're going, oh, there's the Germans or there's the... They had no clue. And so there was no way of communicating. There was no Rosetta Stone that, okay, let's figure out how we can have relations with this tribe. They're, they just disappeared, okay? And they moved. And so this, that's how confusing languages causes people um, to split. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Um, and so whether um, the original language was Hebrew, um, we don't know. Um, but um, we ended up going from 70 languages and those 70 languages most likely... Um, spread out into the many different languages we, we have today. Okay? And for many thousands of years, people went like this and they split out. And it wasn't until the earth was really filled that we all started coming back together again and we started mixing and, and coming back. All right, so any questions on, on that? Okay, one last thing I want to do because this is, a, um, this is a study that was done by Arthur Custis and it is pretty fascinating. It is pretty fascinating. And it's, it's basically, he did a research and he really looked at the whole idea of the blessing that was mentioned um, with Shem and um, um, Ham and Japheth. And he was looking at this and he, and he found something fascinating. Um, when he looked at Shem, now God said, um, um, gave him a blessing. And when we look at Shem... It seems that Shem and all those people that come from that line have a spiritual bent. Okay? So when you think of Shem, think of spiritual. Okay? When you think of Ham, think of technological. And I'll go back and explain these in a second. When you think of J- uh, Japheth, think of intellectual or, or philosophical. Okay? Now when I say intellectual, I don't want, want it to be confused as these people were smarter than the other two. That's not, that's not what I mean. They have a bent to like to think and like to just spend all their days talking about philosophy type type vibe. Um, there is no difference between brain power between a Hamitic person, a Semitic person, or a Japhetic person. Okay, there's no difference in IQ. For many years, um, people would say certain things about the Hamitic tribes because there was a lot of racism. Okay, there is no curse on Ham as far as well. The Hamitics are darker, and so they're going to be slaves. And that's that's not the case. You will find as dark as dark can be and as light as light can be in the Semitic tribes. You will find as dark as dark can be and as light as light can be in the Japhetic. Okay, I, I ran into some Indian people that were as dark as you could possibly imagine. Okay, and same with the Hamitic. You'll find, um, you'll find the dark Hamitics and you'll find the light, the Aborigines. You'll find the very light Hamitics. Okay? So as we look at these three, it seems that... Um, the Hamitic tribes had a technological bent. And what that means is, if you trace back all the inventions, all the first-time inventions um, in the history of the world, almost 98% of them came from the Hamitic tribes. Came from the Hamitic tribes. And I have a list of these, which is pretty fascinating. Mechanical principles and applications. Um, listen, all the things that were first discovered by the Hamites. Copper, bronze, iron, cast iron, steel, um, pulleys, gears, um, catapults, suspension bridges, um, chain drives, lathes, fire pistons, nails, saws, um, 
rope saws, hammers, um, pipe systems, skyscrapers, sandpaper, I know I'm going high and low on these things. Um, they were the first ones to discover linen, cotton, silk, wool, felt, lace, netting, looms. Um, they were the first ones to, in, um, to discover writing, um, printing, etc. Textbooks, libraries, envelopes, pencils, crayons, chalks, inks, encyclopedias, all the way down. Food stuff, aloes, pears. All these things were first discovered by Hamitic people. It is crazy when you go back and you look at where these things come from. Very few Japhitic people ever discovered any of these. Very few Semitic. But as the Hamites to where all these original discoveries happened. Now you go to, now you go to um, Shem. We have a lot of religions in the world, but there are three great religions, and they all came from the Semitic tribe. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. They all came from Semitic. Yes, we have Hindu, we have um, Buddhism, Confucianism, but those are, yes, they're religions, but they're not the same. They're more ethical, principle-type living, okay? You can trace almost any, what we would, uh, what a biblical religion would be, and almost all of them come from the Semitic tribes. You go to the Japhitic, we talked about how they have a bent for the um, intellectual. Look at all the philosophy, trace all the philosophy and all the religions that are philosophical based or ethical based, they all come from the Japhitic. All the great philosophers come from either India or the Japhitic line up in Europe. Almost all of them. And so it, it is really weird how almost all the discoveries, the technological piece came from the uh, Hamitic, all the spiritual pieces came from the um, uh, Semitics, and all the intellectual uh, philosophical pieces come from the Japhitics. This plays out in history. How do um, these different groups form governments? Look at almost all the Hamitic tribes. They were the first ones to discover, by the way, civilizations. Um, you look at the Aztecs, you look at the um, Sumerians, you look at the um, Egyptians. Very similar. It's, it's crazy how similar the pyramids in Egypt are to the, um, to the ones down in um, um, South America and Central America and the ones that were in Samaria, almost, almost identical. How do, they, how do the Hamitic people typically form government? It's warlord chieftain type government. Look at all the Native American. Look at all the, the ancient Egyptians. Look at all the Orient. It's very, almost always, it's, it's a, a chieftain type, warlord type leadership. Okay? How do Japhitic people wage, um, form governments? They go for more of the philosophical, demo, or, uh, democratic, and I'm not saying one's better than the other. Um, look at almost all the Japhitic line, and you'll see their forms of government typically have some kind of um, democracy, have senates, have all this kind of stuff. Okay? Look at the Semitic. How do they form governments? Spiritually based. Okay? They're theocracies. And you look at almost all, you look at the, um, the Middle East, almost all the leaders come from um, the religious base. It's weird, but they, how do they wage war? Japhitic. How do they wage war? Strategy. Okay? They like strategy. Okay? Intellectual type war. They come up. How do um, Hamitic people wage war? Okay? Warlord type. Violent. Aggressive. Different. Look at when um, England came over to America. Two different types of warfares ran face to face. 
All right, gents, let's line up. And that didn't work out too well. Okay, um, look at the Semitics. How do they wage war? It's a jihad. It's spiritually based. Okay, it is crazy when you go back and look at Noah's three sons and these three separations, and you follow out these little bits. It seems to play out in history. So what? However, God used that. Whether He gave different people these different vents or different cultures these different vents, because when they come together, it works out perfectly. When they come together, it works out perfectly. What happens when you mix the spiritual and the intellectual? You get theology. You get the study of God. Prophetic people are not original people. They come and they sort of stand on the shoulders of genius. They go, all right, I'm going to take the spiritual and I'm going to add a study of it and. Okay, what happens when you mix um, the technological piece of the Hamitics with the intellectual piece of the Japhitics? You get scientific method. Okay, it, 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 it's crazy when these two cultures come together how and how things um, work out. So it's a fun study if you ever want to look at it, um, Arthur Custis. But I thought it was um, I just wanted to bring that up to you today. All right, turn to um, Genesis chapter twelve. And let's look at this character named Abraham. So we're moving down the timeline. Noah was somewhere around 2500 B.C. We're now around Abraham, which is around 2000 B.C. We're starting to make our way into um, our history books now. Um, the Old Kingdom is forming in Egypt. Um, um, the, one of the original dynasties over in China is happening, but there's still really not that much happening in the world. Most of it is still in that habitable zone. We get to this character named Abraham. We'll put him around 2000 B.C. Another character in the Bible that is um, contemporary with Abraham is a guy named Job. So when you look at Job, you can put that right there on your timeline. So now we get into an incredible moment in history, and this is... In chapter 12. And you see at the very end of chapter 11, we finish our timeline from, from chapter 5 to chapter 11. And it leaves off, Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. So we get to Abram. Um, now Abraham was called Abr Abram before his name was changed. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. Abram was from a place called Ur, which in modern sense is between basic, basically, it's, you've got Baghdad. It's just south, about halfway between Baghdad and the Persian Gulf. can't remember the modern city. Do you remember the modern city that Ur was? Do you remember? Okay, so um, that's where he was from. He was called to go. Abram was from a, fa a fairly wealthy family. Um, he was called to go and to leave everything behind. Okay? This is really one of the first calls that God gives to someone to actually go individual. Now, he told everybody to be fruitful and multiply and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, if, if Manny didn't mention it, um, in chapter 9, verse 3 is where we get the first um, permission to eat meat. So before the flood... Everybody was um, vegetarian. Um, on chapter 9, verse 3, God reissues his original command to the people and he adds the clause that you can now eat meat as long as there's no lifeblood in it. So you can't just grab a cow and eat it without killing it first. Um, 
So the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. This is what's called the Abrahamic Covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see many different covenants. So let me talk a little bit about what a, what a covenant is. There are two types of covenants. There are conditional and unconditional covenants. Conditional covenants are also called bilateral which means both sides have to fulfill their covenant in order for it to work. If one side fails, the other side is not obligated to honor their end. Does that make sense? Okay. Unconditional covenants are also called unilateral covenants, and that means it's a covenant going one way. Okay, It's a covenant going one way. One side has promised to keep this covenant whether the other side does or not. Okay? This covenant with Abraham was an unconditional covenant between God and Abraham. Whether Abraham messed up or not, God was going to keep his sides. So the three blessings or the three parts of this covenant are this. God promised land. God promised descendants. And God promised a blessing. So he was going to give so he was going to give Abraham or Abram land. Okay? We will go further and find out that for four hundred years your God's people would be taken captive, would be enslaved, and then they would go back to the land again. Okay? But here's the first mention of that promised land that Abraham and God's people were given. From chapter 12 all the way until we get to the cross. Remember, the Bible is just following Abraham and his descendants. So they will get land. He will get descendants. Okay. Now this would be... Um, important to Abram, the, the older he got, the more the second part of it started to not make sense because he had no kids yet. Okay, But God's promise was you will have descendants and everybody will be blessed because of you. Why would people be blessed because of the descendants of Abraham? Jesus. Okay? Okay? Jesus. So they... It was talking about everybody be blessed because of what's coming out of your bloodline. Okay, and so that is what it, that's what it's referring. Now, how they would do, um, we see in Ch Genesis chapter 15. We don't have time to really walk through it, or, but Genesis chapter 15, we see the ceremony of this covenant that was issued in chapter 12. And what God had him do was go find specific animals. He had to cut it in half, cut each animal in half, except for the birds, and place it on each half. So here's like a cow, place half of the cow here, 
Place half of the cow there. Here's this, half here, half there, half here, half there. Forming sort of a little gauntlet, a little, little, um, a little walking path. And then how covenants were done back then is the two people would walk between the blood. The blood and they'd walk through, and once they walked through, that covenant was sealed. For all the witnesses, that covenant was sealed. Okay? So on a on a bilateral covenant, two people would walk through, or a conditional covenant, two people would walk through, and whatever they covenanted together, they were for they had to keep those covenants. Okay? If only one person walked through, then it was an unconditional covenant. That person was bound to the covenant to whoever he was issuing it to. This was an unconditional covenant with Abraham. We will see that Abraham was put into a sleep and God, fire, walked through this, um, this path signifying that God will keep his promise. God will keep his promise on all three of these issues. Okay? We look further, we look at the covenants between Moses. Those were conditional covenants. If Israel behaved and obeyed, they were blessed. If they disobeyed, which Israel loved to do, they were not blessed. So those were conditional. God was only bound to bless them if they obeyed. So does that make sense? You'll see a lot of different covenants. There was actually a covenant between God and Noah. There was a covenant between um, Abraham. There's one between Moses. There's one between David. So throughout the Old Testament, we'll run into covenants. But just as long as you know the two um, different types, um, those are important. Um, we are going to skip all the way up. And we're going to... We're going to move to chapter 22. There are a lot of other things that happened with Abram, um, who ended up becoming Abraham. You'll see a lot of those in your reader. We've all heard about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot and all that kind of stuff. So these are, these are all happening around 2000 B.C. So the, the um, Lot, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, that all happened around Abraham. Okay? We get to a very important piece, and I want to read through this. And this is Abraham tested. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, you don't have to look there now, but throughout Hebrews chapter 11, there's a, there's a list of a hall of fame, basically, of men and women of faith. And it always introduces the new person by saying, by faith, Enoch. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, David. Okay? By faith means, literally means God-enabled. So God enabled Abraham, and then it goes on to say what Abraham accomplished. God enabled Moses, and it goes on to um, list what Moses accomplished. So basically, everybody in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, because they humbled themselves and allowed God to enable them, they were able to accomplish great things. You look at Hebrews 11, and these people weren't any smarter, any more beautiful, any richer than anybody else. They were just people that humbled themselves and allowed God to take over their lives. That's what faith is. Faith is humbling yourself and allowing God to move. Okay? And so these people were able um, to accomplish amazing things. And again, there was nothing spectacular about these people. And these people weren't all necessarily the greatest people in the world either. You can go down and find warts on every single person. 
Okay? Abraham, we see many instances where he lied. Okay? Uh, she's not my wife. <laughs> Go ahead and put her in your harem. Okay? I mean, seriously, there was a lot of things about Abraham that he did that were rather stupid. Okay? Moses made a lot of mistakes. Moses was a murderer. He murdered someone. Noah, we, we talked about earlier. Okay? Noah, Noah got drunk. Noah got drunk. Okay, we talk about Ham reacting to it wrong. Well, if Noah would have never got drunk, none of that would have happened. Okay? Um, you look at throughout, the, throughout Hebrews 11, you got murderers, drunks, adulterers, rapists, prostitutes. The whole litany of people are listed there. The difference is these people at some point in their life, and Lynn even mentioned it with David this morning, at some point in their life they went, all right, God, I'm going to live under your authority. Enable me to do do the things that are in your will. And that's what happened. So Abraham is known as the man of faith. Throughout the, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever he's quoted, a lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll credit him as being the man of faith. And aside from Noah, or aside from Moses, Abraham is pretty much the most talked about person in the Old Testament. Okay? Here's one of the great acts of faith on Abraham's part. Chapter 22, this is when Abraham got tested. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, here I am, um, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Okay, so now I, Isaac has been born. And I know some of you might be going, oh my gosh, we're skipping ahead. We, we will talk about the whole Isaac and Ishmael issue because that also plays out in the whole um, Semitic issues. Um, take your son, your only son, Isaac and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out um, for a place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw a place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the bird offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to Father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood, so Isaac's a little perceptive. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Let's pause there in in verse 8. Imagine Abraham. He's finally getting the second part of of the covenant. He's got his son. He's got Isaac. Yes, he had Ishmael too. But he's got Isaac, the one that's going to have the bloodline go through. He's now going to have this descendants. And as soon as he gets this son, a couple years later, all of a sudden God's like, hey, just go sacrifice this son. Imagine how that feels. Forget the part of him actually dying. Obviously, as parents, we're like, that's pretty lame. I don't want to stab, that's my son over there, by the way, Todd. Um, that would be lame. So, but aside from that, Abraham's also got to be going, wait a second, God. You promised me. You promised me. And so many times in our life, things happen, and we look at God going, God, why are you doing this to me? And, and we, we look at so focused on just the temporal, and we stop, and we, we stop looking at things 
over the course of time. Wisdom is biblically stated, and we've said this before, seeing things the way God sees them. God sees the whole game board. God sees the whole maze. He sees the whole journey. He knows exactly what needs to happen. And so here, Abraham is walking with Isaac with the command to sacrifice him. Abraham takes his first steps of faith by going. Abraham could have said, no, forget you. No, I'm not going to kill my kid. But Abraham followed. We move on. Verse 9. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Imagine that. Isaac is laying on the altar and Abraham's lifting the knife. Imagine being Isaac. No one ever talks about Isaac. Imagine him looking up going, what on earth? I don't like your God. <laughs> you know, um, As Abraham's about ready to plunge a knife into his heart. And then here's a key thing in verse 11, and we'll talk about this in a second. But the angel of the Lord, you might want to underline the angel of the Lord, called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. No, or now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Okay, a little bit of a, to the future. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that, pl- that place, the Lord will provide. And what did he call the place? The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven the second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together to Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Two major things I want you to pay attention to here. The first one is, where did, where did Abraham's faith start? Where, where's the faith moment in this story? Yep. Verse 5. Verse 5. We will go over there and worship, and we will return. I would have been questioning God. Questioning him on his love. How could a loving God do this? We hear that all the time. I would be questioning him on him not, not being true to his promise. I would just assume in my own finite mind that God's breaking his promise. He's breaking his covenant that he's not supposed to break because he's going to make me kill my son. Abraham didn't think that way. He assumed that somehow we... Me and Isaac are going to return. He didn't know how. Maybe Isaac would be raised from the dead. Who knows? Maybe, who knows? But he knew that God would provide. Okay, so there's the faith moment. It wasn't when he actually lifted the knife. It's before he even got there. Okay? So that's critical. 
Now here's a fun little thing I want you to pay attention to about this whole area. This mountain that this sacrifice is happening on is right next to where the temple was built eventually, where Solomon's temple would be built. And we'll get to that in future weeks. We see in the New Testament, where's the temple grounds? Okay, it's the same. Okay, the portico where, where Jesus walked is from Solomon's temple. It's called Solomon's Colonnade. Okay, so where Jesus taught is where Solomon's temple is. It's the same temple. And right next to the temple is what? This little mountain. Where was Jesus crucified? Right next to the temple. Where does the sacrifice happen? Right next to the temple. It's a very good chance that this incident with Abraham and Isaac was on the very same mountain that Jesus was crucified on. This hill is called God will provide. Okay? Gets even funner. More fun. <laughs> Let's look at verse... Go back to nine. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him there on the altar on top of the wood. He reached out his hand and took the knife and to slay his son. But what were you supposed to underline? The angel of the Lord. Any time you see the term the angel of the Lord, not a angel of the Lord or an angel. The angel of the Lord, most likely, it's not referring to an angel, but it's referring to who? Jesus. Here is why. We talk about Jesus, a lot of people go, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that's when Jesus first started. No, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word is Jesus. Jesus is the second part of the Trinity. Jesus was there in the beginning, okay, because He's God. And so... It is unreasonable to believe that the second part of the Trinity stayed silent while the first and the third part were active in the Old Testament. That is not true. All three parts of the Trinity were heavily active in the Old Testament. Okay? There are times where you see stated that you can't even look at God's face, or you can't be in His presence, or you'll die. But then, a couple chapters later, someone's walking. Okay? It's because that person's not walking with God the Father, that person's walking with Jesus. Okay, so anytime you see the term the angel of the Lord, it most likely refers to what's called a theophany, okay, or more specific, a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. A theophany is, is basically an appearance of God, okay, but a Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus. This gets fun when you start looking at this. So it was Jesus that stood with Abraham. It was Jesus that called out from heaven, stop. Okay, this wasn't an angel. Angels don't swear by themselves. They can't. Okay, this is God speaking. Okay, I find it incredibly fascinating that it was Jesus himself, 2,000 years before he would hang on the cross, that looked down to Abraham and said, stop. Spare your only son. God will provide. And from Abraham all the way to Jesus, we follow this line to the point where God did provide. 
where that blessing finally had its culmination in the Messiah, Jesus. Okay, Messiah, the anointed one. Okay, Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. One's Hebrew, Hebrew is Messiah, Greek is Christ. Okay, so Jesus is the Messiah. So, as we start going through the Old Testament, it's a lot more fascinating when we start seeing this angel of the Lord as he sits down next to Gideon and says, mighty warrior. Jesus sitting down to Gideon and going, I know you're the lowest of the low from the lowest tribe, but you're a mighty warrior. I find it fascinating and encouraging that it's Jesus is the fourth man in the, the fiery furnace. I find it fascinating and encouraging that it's Jesus who's speaking from the burning bush um, to Moses saying, and when Moses says, who are you? He says, I am that I am. I am that I am. It's Jesus that commissions. It's Jesus that goes in front of the Israelite. The second part of the Trinity, God the Son, is heavily active, if not more active than the other three in the Old Testament. All culminating up to the point where the time is specifically right for God to become flesh. For Jesus, God the Son, to become flesh and dwell among men and die on the cross in our place because God promised 2,000 years earlier that he would provide. And he actually promised even earlier than that if you go back um, to Genesis. Okay. I will crush his head and he will strike your heel. Okay? So it, it's a lot of fun when we start, start seeing this whole angel of the Lord thing um, and know that our Savior has been active in our redemption from day one. Okay? So any questions on that? I wanted to make sure you hit that because we're going to run into the angel of the Lord um, quite a bit. And it's a lot of fun. All right. So next, our next meeting, and we'll, if you only go to Sundays, you'll be able to hear that podcast, or not, and I'll, I'll catch you up a little bit next um, next Sunday. But at the mind, we're going to go ahead and firmly catch up. We'll do Isaac and Jacob together, and they, obviously they play together very well. Um, and then we'll be we'll be well. Actually, they don't. But, um, so, um, and so we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Isaac and Ishmael as well. Um, because a lot of the things that happened with Isaac and Ishmael are still playing out today um, as you follow these genealogies um, all the way down. Any questions um, for today at all? Yes. No, no. Um, you got a specific verse? Now, I don't, I don't think so. I think we might be adding adding to that. Um, um, I, I don't I don't think that's a true statement, but I'll, I'll actually look that up and, and see what the historicity is behind behind that. But I, I don't think that's the case. Anything else? All right. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Uh, Dear Holy Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for. Um, 
your blessings upon our life. We thank you for the covenant made so long ago that, um, that someday um, we would be blessed through um, Abraham's descendants. We thank you for um, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for what it means to be redeemed, to be saved, to be justified, um, to know that when we die, we will have eternity with you. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to, to just dig into your word and, and learn about um, all, the, all, all the different aspects of your love for us. Heavenly Father, I, I do pray that we don't um, merely listen to the word and deceive ourselves, but we actually do what it says. Um, Heavenly Father, I just pray for um, this week. I, I pray that um, you bless us, that um, um, you keep us moving moving forward. We do thank you again for the blessings that you gave the team over in India. I pray for rest and um, um, a quick return back there. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray even for today. Um, it's a big day in American culture with the Super Bowl. Heavenly Father, I just pray that at some point um, in all these different parties that there's a divide moment um, to where um, we have a friend over or, or, or something that we can maybe spend a little time and, and talk about and, what it means um, to follow you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are and we thank you for your love. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.